0: Ronan Farrow's explosive New York Times bestseller, Catch and Kill, is now in paperback and newly updated for 2020. Meticulous and devastating, raves the Associated Press. Part all the president's men, part spy thriller. For more information, visit
1: catchandkill.com.
0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So, I often find that when I interact with journalists the absolute best people in their field are the ones who actually worked in the field that they're covering before they became reporters. And one of my guests who I've had on the show before, Bill Cohan, is the absolute best when it comes to actually understanding what's going on with the economy, the Fed, talking about bonds, you name it, things that, I'll be quite honest, I don't even understand. And you probably don't either. However... Bill is brilliant at explaining why we are in the situation we're in, where we're going to be, and so on. He also has a new book out called Four Friends, which is about the lives cut short of some of his friends that he went to Andover school with, including John F. Kennedy Jr., So Bill's coming on the show uh, this week. I'm really excited to have him on. He's going to talk about what's going on with the economy, where this recession that we've all been hearing about for so long is, and when it's going to finally get here, and why Trump might be the one that brings it here. And then stick around. We're going to talk about his new book afterwards, and it's a fascinating, fascinating tale. So without further ado. Bill, welcome back to Inside the Hive. Nick, it is always a great pleasure to be on with you. I, 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 I'm I so excited. I have so many questions to ask about the economy and you-know-who, him. And <laughs> he, who shall not be named. He, he, should we just refer to him as that from here on out? Uh, or Voldemort. That's uh, fine with me. Here, he, he who shall not be named. And, um, and then you have a new book out, which I'm very excited to talk about. So let's start with he, who shall not be named. I'm going to name him just so people understand. Donald Trump. And um all right, so you came on the show about was it a year ago? Maybe something like that. Yes, and you had you had a prediction uh, that the economy would be at some point heading into a recession. And we've had a few bumps in the road, but it's like I sometimes look at the news with, you know, like when you look when you're watching a horror movie through your eyes and your hands, and they're kind of like,, uh, Stretched over themselves, and and you see like this breaking news: the Dow hit a hundred thousand, and the S and P's at seven million. And you're, and then Donald Trump's tweeting about it. What is? Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I'm a little torn here because a good economy is good for us, but it's bad because he may use it to win the White House for the second term, which means he then puts in seventy-five justices. In the Supreme Court, and it's all game over. Um, Can you kind of put this into perspective for me a little bit?
2: Right. So um, I I confess that I might be like a broken clock, uh, which is right twice a day uh, when it comes to the economy uh, and what I think is going to happen. Um, So, a few thoughts. Uh, You know, no one rings a bell at the top of the market and says, you know, that's it. Uh, uh, thanks for playing. It's all downhill from here. Uh, so as we know, uh, the stock market, which of course is not the real economy, can keep going up and up and up. Uh, but then at some point, you know, since it's a confidence game, uh, people lose confidence and then it just sort of spirals downward and and knows no bottom. And all that confidence uh, is like, Rain in the Sahara—it just evaporates uh, right in front of your eyes. And so, uh, I personally still believe, uh, you know, that that's what's going to happen. Uh, And there's more evidence of that than ever. First of all, the stock—you know, literally a peak means that you are at the top, and that no matter what direction you go in, you're going down. So, I personally believe that the stock market uh, is, you know, at or approaching its peak. uh, know, of course, I felt this way for a while and really hasn't gone up that much uh, in a year, although it's had an, a nice run uh, since uh, Trump did what uh, all presidents like to do. But, of course, being Trump, he takes it to absurd uh, uh, levels, and that is uh, trying to bully the Fed into lowering interest rates. And Trump is a big bully, and so Jay Powell, who... Uh, for much of 2018, was doing the right thing. It seemed to me, with regard to interest rates, because uh, you know interest rates are the way uh, we price money. Uh, and uh, uh, for the ten years after the financial crisis, the Fed, through quantitative easing and other programs, kept the price of money artificially low. And Jay Powell, the new Fed chairman, was. Uh, Through the course of 2018, he raised interest rates four times and and was in the process of normalizing the price of money and sort of taking the Fed out of the game of pricing money and letting the market price money, which was, uh, 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 in a sense, uh, uh, raising interest rates, trying to normalize the risk-reward ratio between... Uh, uh, the price of money, uh, uh, the, uh, the investment in uh, uh, bond uh,
0: securities, and the risk that was being taken. Uh, Jay, uh, they call him Jay, but his Jay name, Powell. Jay, uh, Jay Powell. Jerome. So what, this last week, there was some news that Trump was... Was he threatening to try to fire him? He can't fire him, right? It's, it would only be that he would step down, and he said he wouldn't step down. Is that correct? Yes. So tr- tr- Trump has been trying to push powell
2: trump thought that uh, powell raising interest rates four times in 2018 was a big mistake invited him you know started jawboning him in january invited him to the white house in february and next thing you know uh, powell is quote pivoting and talking about lowering interest rates at a time when the economy is supposedly booming so it makes no sense and so part of that was that trump was threatening to fire Powell. Then he realized, I guess, he couldn't find a lawyer that would tell him that that was a good idea or that he could even do that. Uh, and then, because you need to have a cause, you'd have to fire him for cause. And and disagreeing with the president on interest rates and monetary policy is not cause. So then he thought, well, I'll demote him. Uh, and then he was asked by Maxine Waters at a hearing last week in Congress, you know, if Trump you know, fires you or says he's going to fire you, will you leave? And he said, no, I won't, which was the absolutely the right answer. And unfortunately, you know, he's standing up for himself in that context, but it looks like He's going to lower interest rates next week whenever it is that the Fed meets. And that's, to me, the exact wrong thing. And that is going to, getting back to your main question, in my mind, that's going to exacerbate the
0: financial crisis. So Jay's a Republican. So he's obviously going to want a Republican. Private equity guy. Made his money at Carlisle. Loves uh, Trump's tax policies and so on and so forth. So, but is is... Is it going to have a big effect on the economy if he lowers it or raises it within, you know, a quarter point here or there? So, again... I'm not Paul Krugman. I'm not a Nobel (laughs)
2: Prize-winning economist. Well, pretend you are on this show. Okay. So I'm going to pretend that I am, and I've been outspoken. Welcome to the show. I
0: have Bill Cohen, a Pulitzer Prize-winning economist. Nobel
2: Prize-winning. Sorry. Right. Uh, uh, You can confuse me with Paul Krugman uh, in the brains department if you want. So uh, I personally think that uh, risk has been mispriced in the bond market for uh, a close to 10 years now. And what that means, uh, Nick and to people who are listening is that people are investing in bonds because uh, to try to get higher yields than they can get because interest rates are so low that if they just buy treasury securities, you know they're going to get like two percent or less on their money. and so they're uh, participating in what I call the yield hunger games, where they're like trying to find higher yields. and so what are the yields find- they can get on a bond? Well, higher yields than they can get on a safe bond. So what that means is they go down the risk curve. Uh, They begin to take more and more risk to try to get a higher return on their money. And so normally, uh, a junk bond that is a bond of a company that is less than uh, has less than stellar credit should yield like 10 or 11 or 12 percent. That's sort of a normal return for a junk bond. Well, nowadays, junk bonds are yielding less than 6%, and I was just reading over the weekend that some junk bonds in Europe actually have negative yields. I mean, it's the most absurd thing. So what does this mean? It means that uh, investors are taking absurd amount of risk, and they're not getting compensated for it. So when the economy turns, and obviously, if people are talking about lowering interest rates, that means there must be some sort of fear of recession, which means the economy is going to turn, then all those people who invested billions and trillions of dollars in corporate bonds, where they've overpaid for them because they mispriced the risk, are going to lose their money. And when people lose money in the bond market, Nick, uh, then they don't want to invest in bonds anymore. And when they don't want to invest in bonds anymore, then people can't raise money in the bond market. When people can't raise money in the bond market, the bond market freezes up. And when the bond market freezes up, uh, that's like literally throwing sand into the gears of the economy. And the economy just falls off a cliff, which is basically what happened in 2008. And we're just asking for it again now by lowering interest rates.
0: So what you're saying is you did call it right a year ago. You just got the timing wrong. and, And there is a pretty good chance that if Donald Trump keeps prodding at the Fed that there will – I'm just ex- translating for myself uh, here. <laughs> and doing a um,
2: damn good job uh, of
0: it. Uh, uh, that um, if, he keeps tra- um, if he keeps doing this with the Fed, that he could break the toy that he's playing with. I,
2: that's exactly beautifully said.
0: Thank you very um, much. I and, think. He's,
2: and he seems determined to do that because he's decided that, quote-unquote, an economy that looks strong, low unemployment – uh, high, uh, you know, stock market at all-time highs, low interest rates. He he thinks that is the the key to his getting reelected. And if you go back to, you know, George Stephanopoulos, uh, it's the economy stupid, uh, or, or uh, you know, maybe it wasn't George Stephanopoulos.
0: Uh, doesn't matter. We uh, can pretend on the show.
2: We can pretend that it was uh, that. Um, uh, you know that's his best chance now of getting reelected on the margins because he's got his base but he needs the the people in the middle who are trying to decide whether to vote for him or not for reelection and if the economy is strong then the on balance people vote for a strong economy but in effect uh, what i think what he's doing here is he's hoping he can keep the economy strong until November 2020 and I'm I'm betting that it's going to fall off the cliff before that. So in a, in a weird way, Nick, uh, uh, not being uh, a Trumpist, I hope in a weird way that he keeps pushing Powell to lower interest rates, that Powell does lower interest rates and the economy uh, uh, falls off a cliff so that we can be rid of this guy. Uh, but unfortunately, we're all going to pay the price because this guy is trying to uh, manipulate uh, interest rates in the economy for his own political gain.
0: So y- years years ago, Donald Trump was you know you you'd met him, you'd hung out with him, and knew him in New York. He was a, a buffoon. You know, everyone made fun of him. He was just a total loser for want of a better description here. Um, and he when he got into you know, I think partly when he got into office, you were telling me that the feeling on him somewhat changed a little on Wall Street because now they had the he had the power to be able to kind of change their taxes and so on how do they feel about him now how do like when you go to like some of the big banks and you talk to the big bankers do they love him do they hate him do they think he's a you know a stain on society like what what's the thought I
2: I think they think he is an uh, you know a, a literally an, an insult to their uh, intelligence uh, uh, the things that come out of his mouth uh, on a regular basis or through his fingers and the Twitterverse offend them deeply, deeply, Uh, and they don't think that he is uh, what this country is all about. I think people on Wall Street are as patriotic as anyone and believe in the idea of America as much as anyone and find this guy offensive on any number of levels. Uh, On the other hand, they do like low interest rates. They do like a strong economy. They do like low Corporate tax rates. Why? Because it's good for their clients. It's good for corporate America. And if it's good for corporate America, it's good for Wall Street, because if corporate America is feeling confident, if their profits are higher, if they you know can see uh, M and transactions on the horizon, then that's all good for Wall Street, which is in the business of taking uh, fees on all those transactions. So more transactions, more equity being raised. More companies going public, uh, more bonds being issued, more M&A deals, more money being managed, uh, people getting wealthier and wealthier. All that is good for the interstitial men, uh, which is what Wall Street is—people who, you know, take uh, pennies of every dollar that uh, goes through the system—and and and that's uh, what Donald Trump has delivered for them. I mean, the whole—do they want
0: Donald Trump in 2020, or do they not? Because it's you know you're saying uh, no safe- I
2: think I think I think the first overrides the second, right? God. I mean oh, it does. especially now wow. that the that the you know the tax law is in place, right? I mean corporate rates are twenty one percent, so I think they uh, think that you know if if we get rid of this guy uh, and replace him uh, with somebody who is a centrist now. That means, I mean, I, I, we're not talking... They don't want Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders here, no surprise. Mm. But, but they would be happy with Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Mayor Pete, uh, you know, this kind of sort of centrist uh, people who aren't going to sort of blow up and target Wall Street as, as the, you know, the e-
0: incarnation of evil. Well... That's uh, that's promising, I guess. That they they're not going to go with option two instead of option one, but uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. Uh, last question, and then we're going to get to your book on on all of this. It, so you were just my question was going to be, you know, if you had to pick who you think they're going to support, and you know, I think it's what's interesting in Silicon Valley it, and out here in Hollywood is um, at first there was a a lot of excitement around like Warren and people like that because they saw oh well this is someone that could could possibly defeat Trump. But now Silicon Valley wants nothing to do with her because she wants to break up big tech. And so they had to find a a new person to kind of get behind. And I think that's still kind of being played out. I I, I think personally I've written stories uh, with and about Kamala Harris where she's actually gone after big tech, and I don't necessarily know if she wouldn't be doing the same thing, um, something she actually cares about. But who do you think that – that the the bankers are going to kind of uh, push their might behind if they if they have any might to push well I mean they still have might uh,
2: they still have dollars uh, and I think uh, you're, you're beginning to see it play out a little bit um, I think there's clearly a group that likes Biden although I'm not quite sure why uh, you know I think maybe safe pair of hands and the Obama legacy but I uh, I think somewhere between Biden, Kamala Harris, uh, um, Mayor Pete, uh, uh, y- you know, uh, a lot of people like Michael Bennett, uh, but, you know, does he really have a chance? Um, you know, people don't like Tom Steyer, uh, you know, or can't figure out his quixotic efforts. Uh, so, uh, you know, definitely not. Uh, Bernie definitely not Elizabeth Warren, uh, but you know who who knows so we'll see how. Uh, and and I think they definitely do not like Trump, but they have liked some of his policies. But on balance, uh, he's a they believe he's a buffoon who's made the world much less safe and is embarrassing us on all sorts of social and civil rights issues.
1: You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: It's not surprising if you have two or three high interest credit cards in your wallet right now. Why not pay them off with a credit card consolidation loan from my friends at Lightstream? Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Quickly roll your balances from multiple credit cards into one single monthly low payment. Get a low fixed interest rate and free up money in your monthly budget. You can say goodbye to credit card bills and take even more control of your money. Lightstream's credit card consolidation loans have a rate of just 5.95% APR with autopay, and there are absolutely no fees. You even get your money the same day you apply. Here's a testimonial from someone that used it. Finding out about Lightstream couldn't have come at a better time. I wish I had found out about Lightstream sooner. 1,000% recommend to everyone. Lightstream has a special, special rate for listeners of Inside the Hive today. You can apply today and get a special interest rate discount and save even more. The only way to do this is to go to lightstream.com. hive That's L-I-G-H-T s-t-r-e-a-m.com slash hive that's lightstream.com slash hive subject to credit approval rate includes a 0.50% auto pay discount terms and conditions apply and offers a subject to change without notice visit lightstream.com slash hive for more information all right well um Enough Trump, because that's all we've been talking about for the last seventy-five years. So we should uh, we should move on from that try to topic. Move on. Yeah. Um, and thank you for all those explanations. All right. So you have a new book out that I uh, devoured this weekend. Um, I uh, it's an amazing story. I want to know first before you tell me tell us about the book. How did you end up doing this? Well, so if you if you look at sort
2: of what I've what I've done, uh, you know, I, I wrote a book about Lazard, about the collapse of Bear Stearns, about the history and how Goldman Sachs uh, made it through the financial crisis, a book about the Duke Lacrosse uh, scandal. Um, so uh, I like a big reporting challenge, and uh, I also like to sort of pull the curtains behind, back behind big institutions and and incidents that have happened and try to explain them for uh, regular people who may not understand what's going on but would like to understand Uh, and of course I've gotten a lot of blowback uh, from that uh, because uh, these institutions are very powerful and are still by and large still in existence although Bear Stearns is now part of J.B. Morgan so you know as usual I managed to piss off a a lot of people so I thought, well, and that's fine. I'm happy to do that. Uh, I really believe I'm sort of showing, have shown the real story behind these institutions and the events that happened. You know, like, how how did Bear Stearns just go out of existence after 85 years? What really happened in the Duke lacrosse scandal? How did Goldman Sachs make it through the financial crisis? Uh, But I decided that uh, I thought I would take a sort of a break from that by both – Having a serious uh, reporting challenge uh, Doing a book that gave me a serious reporting challenge, which of course this did because my friends my four friends were no longer here to interview uh, and In many cases, you know, I didn't even know uh, uh, th- their, their wives uh, uh, If they had them uh, and their widows, uh, and I also wanted a way to uh, remember uh, my friends uh, from a time uh, when we were in high school together and you know it was a time before social media and Facebook and Twitter and Insta and all that and ways to keep in touch with people so I'd lost touch with them by and large although I did run into John F. Kennedy around New York uh, quite a bit but uh, you know we just lost touch with each other and so just like I wanted to know what happened in the Bear Stearns collapse and what happened in the Duke Lacrosse case, I wanted to know what happened to my friends. I wanted to know how they lived their lives after they left Andover and what they did in their lives uh, before they met their tragic and untimely deaths. And so it was a combination of having a, a, a serious reporting challenge. So it was an intellectual challenge for me and a way to sort of think back elegiacally about the time that we lived together and, you know, I'm, I'm on sort of the, the bottom third, I hope uh, I hope is another third of life. And so, you know, you get to be a certain age and you begin to think about what it all means. What's the meaning of life, existentialism and how to live your life knowing that, you know, your days are numbered or that, you know, they could, you know, life is very fragile and, and, and you know, your life could be over before you know it. And so the combination of all those things led me to want to want to write this book.
0: All right. So you went to school with these four guys, and um, tell us a little bit about what it was like. Because it's hard to kind of visualize um, what it's like to go to this boarding school, especially you know it's like a different era. Like you just mentioned, there's no Insta, there's no this. What's how do you end up there? What's it? What is life like there? Are you terrified? And then what's it like when you kind of meet you know people like John F. Kennedy? Are they John F. Kennedy when they're that young, or are they are they? Are they not? Well, first, you know, I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts,
2: and um, my uh, you know family believed strongly in education, uh, and the sort of secondary school education, the high schools in Worcester weren't particularly good. Um, at that time, I had gone to an elementary school that was uh, literally a former farm. Uh, where there were 10 kids in each class, like the whole sixth grade had 10 kids in it. So uh, it was sort of an experimental school uh, back then, and going to the local public high school wasn't going to do it. And so uh, Andover was 45 minutes away. Uh, You know, we were, you know, aspiring to, uh, you know, you know, move up in American society, if you will, uh, try try to better our lot in life as a family, and so Andover provided a way to do that, and uh, 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 my uh, first cousin went there in the 60s, and then my older brother went there before I did, and my younger brother went there after I did, and you know, I didn't know anything else, right? I was literally, I was 13 years old, and I was shipped off to Andover, a boarding school 45 minutes away, and it was like, you know, going to this extraordinary college. I mean, the physical plant was beyond gorgeous. Uh, there were, you know, it seemed to have infinite resources. The student body was, ex- I mean, just extraordinary. I couldn't believe the 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 varied uh, people who were there from all these different backgrounds, the... Uh, the uh, Uh, one of the slogans of the school, uh, mottos of the school was youth from every quarter. And I felt like there were people from all over the world, all over the country. It was incredibly ecumenical, incredibly supportive. Uh, You know, it was finally co-ed a few years before I got there. So to me, while I was, of course, petrified when I first got there and was wondering why my parents sort of abandoned me, (laughs) uh, you know, in, in this place that, Was overwhelming, uh, I found it quickly very supportive and intellectually rigorous uh, and challenging. And it was a place that allowed you to be uh, quirky and interesting and to sort of celebrate your differences. Uh, And so I found it to be fabulous. Uh, And that was even before uh, John F. Kennedy uh, Jr. arrived on the scene. And of course, that was you know, that was like big news, even by Andover standards where, of course, the Bushes had gone and Humphrey Bogart had gone and Jack Lemmon had gone and James Spader had gone and all sorts of people had, had gone there. Uh, but, you know, John F. Kennedy Jr. was unbelievable wattage, uh, extraordinary wattage, uh, uh, unbelievable plumage. Uh, and, you know, seeing him and Jackie walk down the pathway to our dorm, uh, you know, in the fall of, of 1976, uh you know, is you know
0: engraved on my memory forever. I'll never forget it. Hmm. And so, you, uh, what made you pick these four particular people? And 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 for the listeners out there that don't know anything about the book, can you can you walk walk us through who they are and uh, and how their? We'll get to how their lives were cut short. But what made you pick them? So uh, part of
2: the reason I picked them is a uh, uh, they were friends. Some more, you know better friends than others. I mean, John Kennedy was the closest of my of the four of them, but we were all there at the same time. Um, uh, they were uh, a very diverse uh, group of four people, uh, and as you said, uh, alluded to, uh, they all died young and tragically, and so their stories had sort of uh, you know, when, when these things happen, you know, in, in their 30s, and you're sort of hearing about it second hand, and you sort of file it away and think to yourself, wow, I mean, that's so sad and tragic, you know, what happened, and then you sort of go on with your life. And when, when it got to be, you know, four or five uh, people uh, who I'd known, and was in school with at the same time, where this happened, I thought, well, I have to figure out a what happened to these people uh uh and how they lived before they died and and sort of what's going on here and what does this say about you know the fragility of life and so i thought as i was saying before you know instead of doing a book about bank of america which whatever (laughs) i laugh about that i'm gonna try to write a book that tries to get a little bit to the meaning of life without sort of hitting people over the head with it and so uh You know, the four people, are. one was uh, Jack Berman, who uh, was the son of Holocaust survivors, whose family was uh, moved from the Bronx to rural Connecticut, uh, where they wanted, uh, and they spoke no English, they spoke Yiddish, uh, and they uh, uh, were uh, egg farmers. uh, And Jack had an older brother who was 10 years older uh, than Jack, who was born uh, in the refugee camp in Germany, uh, and then Jack came along, they thought it was some sort of miracle, and Jack was brilliant, and they wanted him to be a rabbi, but his older brother decided, no, his Jack shouldn't be a rabbi, he should have some other more secular experience, and because he was so smart, he basically trotted him up to Andover, you know, after the admissions season was over, and basically bullied Andover into taking him, and, and Andover did, and then he uh uh went from Andover to Brown and then became a lawyer so that was Jack well let's you know uh, what,
0: actually since we're actually doing this let's uh, let's talk about how their lives came to an end cuz i think then we can keep it keep it going in this way i mean so jack was was part of a mass shooting so tell right. us tell us it, what
2: happened well uh, the the reason that we had the assault weapons ban uh for 10 years from 1994 to 2004 which we no longer have which is itself a great tragedy and crime as we all know, uh, was because of uh, killing, a mass killing that Jack was unfortunately a victim of at 101 California Street in San Francisco, where, uh, you know, it was an office building downtown. I used to go there when I worked at Merrill Lynch because that's where Merrill Lynch was in San Francisco. There's there's no plaque, there's no memory, it's an outrage. Uh, this incredible uh, disaster uh, and tragedy happened at 101 California in, in 1993. Uh, And Jack uh, was a lawyer. He was there with one of his clients who was being deposed. uh, And he was in another law firm. And this uh, former client of this other law firm uh, came into the building with a satchel and bag full of assault weapons. Uh, He was a very disgruntled former client and obviously a lunatic. uh, And just started shooting away with these assault weapons uh, in this conference room. And Jack and his client were were two of the victims uh that day uh just incredibly sad and painful and and you know i ha- i spent a lot of time with his uh widow who i'd never met uh in san francisco and just having her tell me this story and uh meeting their one son i mean you know you can imagine what that's like nick uh oh yeah so yeah. um and this was you know four of these uh this is what it was like four different times. So that, that, that was Jack. Uh, uh, then there was a guy named uh, uh, Will Daniel, whose grandfather was Harry Truman, uh, whose father was uh, Clifton Daniel, who was the uh, managing editor of the New York Times for a while. Obviously his mother was Margaret Truman Daniel, the, 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 the uh, Truman's only child. Uh, he was one of four brothers. Uh, and uh, Will uh, was in my dorm uh, at andover you know sort of one of these uh super smart uh uh new york kids in the fast lane and as you as i told you i was this like rural yokel local from worcester mass and uh, i was always dazzled by will uh, but he really marched to his own drummer he spent his life running away from his family's legacy didn't want anybody to know he was Truman's grandson, didn't want him to, anybody to know that his father was managing editor of the New York Times, uh, could have gone into journalism, was a pretty good writer, could have gone into politics, didn't want to have anything to do with that, worked with homeless men in, in New York City, uh, got them to vote, uh, tried to make sure that they didn't get AIDS, uh, and uh, really devoted himself to public, quiet public service in that way, uh uh lived a very sort of iconoclastic uh uh life uh peripatetic uh moving around a lot uh never uh, got married had this great line that my youngest son loves. Uh, he told one of his uh yale uh classmates that. Uh, when he would meet a woman who he was thinking about dating, the first thing he would do is break up with her to get that out of the way uh, <laughs> so that he wouldn't have to uh, worry about that down the road. And um, uh, one night uh, uh, over Labor Day weekend uh, in uh, the year 2000, I believe, he uh, uh, had been at a party in Brooklyn till like 2 in the morning had been drinking a lot will like to drink he liked to drink bourbon like his grandfather uh came back uh lived was living in Englewood, new jersey in an apartment uh he, he had broken he was about to break up with this woman who lived uh you know on the east side uh he wanted to stay with her that night but she had to get up uh it's funny what happens uh she had to get up early the next morning to go to her grandmother's uh, birthday party up in Connecticut so she said no you'll disturb me if you come in at three in the morning which is of course true so he uh, uh, called up his mother and said you know can I come back to the apartment on Park Avenue to stay you know what he called the old homestead can I come back to the old homestead she said yes his father had died that previous February uh, and he literally he took the subway from Brooklyn to uh, 77th and Lex and, and got off and was crossing Park Avenue and got hit by a taxi cab uh, that was going north on Park Avenue as he was going uh, west to go back to his uh, family's apartment where he grew up and hmm. uh, never recovered. And the other two? Uh, well, the other two was Harry uh was uh, in my class uh, at Andover from Chicago, Uh, one of the first really sort of uh, neoconservative guys I'd ever met in my life, but a great guy, off the charts, intelligent, IQ off the charts. Um, Had a a bit of a very young at Andover. He was uh, uh, even younger than I was. Uh, uh, Had a rough time adjusting, um, had some troubles, didn't really live up to his potential at Andover. you know, got, had to had to take a leave of absence for a period of time, came back, graduated, went to Yale, uh, dropped out of Yale, took a year off, and then ended up at Northwestern, and then Chicago Law School, uh, became a, a, a lawyer, a partner in Winston and Strawn, and then The day that he became a partner, uh, his father called him up and said, will you come back and run the family business, which was a big uh, paper company in Chicago. He agreed to do that. You know, very normal life, completely well-adjusted wife, three young children, uh, you know, just enjoying life and uh, being the CEO of this family company. And then uh, made the very bad decision to uh, uh, go out with two of his uh, uh, daughters uh his older two older children sailing on lake michigan one beautiful august day uh it was supposed to be an overnight sailing trip and uh uh, i won't ruin the details for people but basically all three of them uh uh, drowned uh and uh one of the one of the bodies of one of the daughters was never found uh and just a really fateful Mm. uh, poor decision to poor judgment and then the fourth, of course, was JFK Jr., and sort of we all have known him our whole lives uh, again. But just another, a, a bigger than life individual who uh, thought that the rules of uh, nature and of, of uh, gravity uh, did not apply to him.
0: Well, that, so that's the thing that's interesting about him as the fourth is that, that he. He ha- you know, these these other ones. They're accidents, right? Uh, you know, one person is shot at work, another is, dies on a, a sailing accident, and another person gets hit by a taxi cab. JFK Jr. He's kind of got this, like almost like death wish, right? It's or is I mean, is it just that he believes that that life that he he, he gets to live a different version of it, or or it, he's he's almost a different character in the book.
2: Well, you, you could argue that uh, uh, the way sort of Harry and Will lived their lives, you know, each in their own sort of reckless ways sort of may have led them to uh, their demise. I mean, obviously, uh, Jack Berman, uh, that was just the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, uh, John was the extreme version of Will and Harry uh, in that he, uh, you know, the l- rules did literally did not apply to him. He's the only a child ever born to a president-elect. He literally grew up in the White House. He grew up in the bubble of the White House to two of the most glamorous people that have ever lived in our country. Uh, and then his father was, of course, martyred. Uh, and, you know, the paparazzi was so intense that they had to move to New York. I mean, John has always been in the public eye. Unlike Will Daniel, he couldn't hide his legacy. He was John F. Kennedy Jr. You know, Will Daniel was not a Truman uh, by name. Mm. And so uh, he couldn't run from the limelight and he sort of embraced it. But, uh, uh, you know, i've never seen anything like this in my life nick is that people would literally change their behavior and change their personalities uh, as they asymptotically got closer to john f kennedy jr they just wanted to be near him his plumage was so bright uh uh people were he was just magnetic literally magnetic uh and i think part of the way to escape all that was to to you know to pilot his own plane to get in that stupid whirly bird contraption that he bought go out kayaking on the hudson or in the arctic circle or in scandinavia take absurd risks physical risks that most people would know not to do but john i mean i mean it's hard to blame him in fact because The the rules of the road didn't apply to him. He had Secret Service protection. He never carried money, but he always had plenty of money and got everything he wanted. I mean, women threw themselves, literally threw themselves at him. I'm sure men would have thrown themselves at him uh, if he were interested. Uh, I mean, it was extraordinary. Uh, And uh, I'm sure, to some extent, he just thought, hey, I'm John Kennedy Jr., you know, I can pilot this plane even though I'm not rated for it and I don't have the experience for it and I can send the flight instructor home because I'm being a nice guy because it's got late because my wife was taking her time at the beauty parlor to, you know when she should have been on her way to the airport and the weather you know the night got uh hazier and hazier and darker and darker and he let the flight instructor go home to be with his family I can handle it And it turned out that, you know, he couldn't. So a fatal error in judgment uh, uh, that, you know, we're now remembering 20 years later. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
1: As you begin planning your next trip, take a look at Cambria Hotels. With more than 50 locations in top cities across the United States, there's a hotel wherever you're headed for either business or pleasure. From Los Angeles to New York City, you'll find a Cambria Hotel with approachable indulgences that make travel better and help you be your best. Whether you want a prepackaged grab-and-go option, or you want to explore the locally inspired menu with a perfectly paired local craft beer, or if you want to take in the outdoors on a breathtaking rooftop, or simply relax while listening to your favorite podcast or music in your spa-inspired bathroom with Bluetooth mirrors, Cambria is thoughtfully designed with you, the modern traveler, in mind. When you're ready to get back on the road, Cambria is ready to welcome you putting you first with enhanced cleanliness practices and social distancing and exclusive features like cambria's contactless concierge service where you can request anything you need from extra towels to food at the bar or checkout all from your smartphone plus each hotel offers a marketplace with drinks snacks and pre-packaged grab-and-go options see how little indulgences can make a big difference when you book your next day at choicehotels.com slash cambria
0: when you're writing and reporting this story for the book, it uh, you're you know how old are you now? Sorry to ask that. Almost question. sixty. I'm sorry. Oh my you goodness. Know, we, yeah we don't tell, but we, no one else is listening. Don't worry. Uh, th- thank the good lord. Um, you're you're writing this and you're working on this and you're almost sixty. Are you having kind of a oh thank God I'm still alive moment, or are you having a holy shit this is going to happen to me soon? Uh, you know, and what's the kind of the big feeling that you're going through as you're, and there, these are also your, your buddies from school too.
2: Right. So, I mean, part of it is I'm, uh, sentimentally remembering them and learning, uh, about their, uh, lives, which again, I didn't really know many you know, so many of the details about their lives. Uh, number one. Uh, and of course I'm thinking, uh, as well, that I'm getting to an age, and I know life is fragile and it doesn't go on forever, and so it, part of it was you know, an existential journey for me, uh, and this whole idea of trying to live your life as if it were your last, which is something, you know, I studied the French existentialist not to get too heavy uh, at Andover. We like heavy hair. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, this was something that I would sort of tucked away in the back of my mind for many years, and it gave me a way to explore these questions of life and death, uh, but not in a too heavy way. And also, you know, journalistically, I looked at it as a journalist, like, okay, yes, these are my friends, but, you know, I have to figure out what happened here, and I have to tell their stories warts and all. I mean, it's not all, you know, these aren't, uh, uh, this isn't hagiography, this is kind of warts and all. Uh, but in a respectful, quasi-loving way.
0: So the the thing that I've always found when writing books, and and I'm curious if you have the same experience, is while the book is about the topic, it's about there's always an underlying theme to it. Like with Twitter, when I wrote about the, Twitter, the book about Twitter, it was about these. It was about how you couldn't find, uh, you couldn't feel less lonely by being with technology you needed to interact with humans and even it was still a story about a business and backstabbing and this that and the other but it was about loneliness at the end of the day and American Kingpin about it was about um, people that you know put their work before anything else and what the end results of that even though it was a story about a drug dealer trying to get away from the police and this that and the other I'm curious for you what at the end of the day this book was about. I think
2: really it was about um, trying to explore the meaning of life, the fragility of life, uh, trying to explore this whole notion that the French existentialists put forth of sort of knowing, you know, we're the only being, the living creature that knows it's going to die at some point, and how do you grapple with that, knowing that, you know, you could go out uh, one day thinking you're taking your two kids on a sailing trip overnight in Lake Michigan, and you know next thing you know, it's your last days on earth. Uh, you think you're uh, going to work to take a deposition. You think you're crossing the street. You think you're doing, you're going up to Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket like you'd done all these years before. And so how do you, how do we grapple with that as human beings, but also tell, sort of a story of these individual guys uh, and and the promise that we all had. And you go to a place like Andover and it gets into your DNA that you can, you know, do whatever you want to do if you just put your mind to it. It's that kind of thing. Uh, but the reality isn't even close to that, number one. And number two, uh, you know, who knows? We don't know what's going to be our final day or our breath, our last breath? And how do you live your life knowing that? And these are like questions that none of us know how to answer, but people have been grappling with trying to answer them forever. And so this was sort of my stab at that without being too heavy-handed, like this isn't, this isn't a philosophy book here. This isn't Heidegger or Kierkegaard
0: or Sartre or Camus. This is, you know, story of my four friends. And from when you started writing it to when you finished you know what is there something that you do differently now is there like is there some is, is there some path that you take differently to work or is there like some do you put your phone down more do you uh, what is it that you what's what was the you know you said you, that it was kind of a an explanation of what what the meaning of life is like what is the meaning of life i mean it's yeah. like what I, is it that you discovered i guess it's it's writing for vanity fair
2: uh <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I I don't I'm not any closer to the the, the the that answer than I was before, but I do think about it a lot more and and I and I wanted to write this so others would think about it too just by virtually reading the book and reading these stories and coming away saying, okay, each of these four guys died young and tragically. Uh, uh what what's sort of the meaning in that? I mean, it, you know, if we could all just, you know, uh uh get along, uh Uh, you know, instead of fighting, you know, we started this conversation talking about he who shall not be named, uh, you know, the the, the divisiveness that has entered our political and and social realm and existence uh, and media existence, I mean, honestly, I don't know why we do that uh, when, you know, life is fragile, life is finite, Uh, it's something about human nature, and, you know, I'm a student like you are, Nick, of human nature, And and I'm trying to figure it out. And this was a way, you know, just like I tried to figure out why Bear Stearns collapsed after 85 years or what really happened in the bathroom uh, on Buchanan Boulevard off East Campus at at Duke. Uh, You know, just trying to figure things out. And uh, being a journalist, being an investigative reporter, you know, I I always think that I'm trying to get a little closer to these things uh, than uh, I was before I wrote them. But, you know. It's a journey. It's tough. Uh, I don't know that I have all the answers. I'm not Paul Krugman. I'm not uh, (laughs) Soren Kierkegaard. I don't have the answers, but it is sort of a
0: really interesting intellectual challenge uh, to write a book like this and to try to figure it out. All right, so last question for you before we let you jet off. I think you're heading off to a flight soon. uh, if you, when you were reading this and writing this, sorry, and you kind of look at the, the the end results of the book, and you go back to your time at Andover, if you could give young William Cohen back then at Andover some advice that you learned while reporting this book and writing this book, what would it be? Now, there's a good question. Uh, you know,
2: I, I I had a good time at Andover, uh, but not too good a time, and. Uh, I probably uh, would have been a more conscientious student. I, I don't know why I say that, but I uh, one thing I did, in, you know, I was able to, with permission, get the academic records of the people I wrote about uh, to see what uh, their, their uh, uh, teachers were saying about them and their housemasters, and I felt it was only right that I did the same thing about myself, you know, and I, of course I thought I was this, you know, a glorious student uh and it turned out that I really wasn't and so i guess since may, maybe i would have spent less time uh you know in extracurricular activities and more time uh studying but you know i guess i don't really have any re- regrets about that and you know I, I there's no real way to have kept in touch with any of these guys better than i was able to do i mean there just weren't ways to do that there were no cell phones Nick, you couldn't, if you didn't know somebody's uh, uh, payphone in their dormitory, uh, how would you uh, possibly keep in touch with them? Uh, and, you know, I'd run into, you know, JFK Jr. on the street in New York, uh, but, the, you know, that was sort of like the best you could do.
0: Hmm. Well, the book is fascinating. It's beautifully written. Uh, The stories, like, you know, they grab you in the beginning and they pull you all the way through. Um, Your description of them was just so brief. I think, you know, it's just an amazing book. So thank you, Bill, so much. The book is called Four Friends Promising Lives Cut Short. And the author is is, uh, Nobel Prize winning, Uh, just kidding, (laughs) William Cohen. Not Not yet, maybe. Maybe Maybe. soon. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time today. This has been great. Thank you, Nick. It's always great to be on with you. Thanks. Thanks to my guest today, Bill Cohan. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find this on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there. If you're going to leave a negative one, don't even waste your time. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors this week, Third Love and Better Help. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next.